Reading from Zechariah chapter 1, verse 18, through to 2.13. Let me find it. All right. Um, Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, what are these coming to do? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Then I looked up and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, what are you doing? Where are you going? He answered me to measure Jerusalem to find out how wide and how long it is. While the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, Escape, you who live in daughter Babylon, for this is what the Lord Almighty says. After the glorious one has sent me against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. Then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Thanks for the reading, Megan. Uh, let me add my welcome to uh, that of Shanae's. It's great that you're here with us. My name's Rod. I'm one of the pastors here at WBC. And we're going to look at that passage as we continue our series in Zechariah tonight. But two quick uh, things before I pray and we have a look at this part of God's Word. Um, firstly, you would have seen uh, an announcement go up a couple of weeks ago, um, letting you know that Kate Cole has joined our uh, staff team and is going to be serving in our admin and comms role and is sort of transitioning between uh, Clayton, who'll be finishing up at the end of this month um, before he takes a position at Tarmore, and then she'll be on her own. Um, Kate's here tonight, um, so it might embarrass you and get you to stand up for just a moment, um, just so you can know where she is, and it might be a good chance to meet her if you haven't already. <laughs> yeah, Definitely. She's usually at our morning service uh, with her family, uh, but she's here tonight, so good chance to get to meet her. Hellos are always easier, goodbyes are a bit harder, and although we're not quite doing goodbyes yet, we wanted to let you know that John and Shanae, if you hadn't heard, will be moving to Griffith in early June, um, and that will be a real sad loss for our church. They've done so much, as all of you in the evening know, in so many ways in the life of our church, but we wanted to let people know a few weeks ahead. We'll have a farewell on the 5th of June, and more will be said then, um, but if you want an opportunity, I guess, to catch up with them in the next month before that time comes and they're moving um inland, then um, just letting you know there's a chance to do that, but we'll, we'll say more on the 5th of June. Um, let me pray for us now and um, ask that God will help us as we look at his word together. 
Let's do that. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the freedom to gather together. Uh, we thank you for giving us your word, that it is something that brings life as we come to trust in your Son, that through it we learn about him and how you might have us live in response uh, to all that you've done for us through his death and resurrection and drawing us into relationship with yourself. And as we look at this second part of Zechariah tonight, that you might uh, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, the challenges that not only were before your old covenant people, but the parallels for ourselves today as we seek to live in the light of your word. So help us, we pray to that end, by your spirit. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. What's it like to leave all that you have ever known and move across the world to a new place in the hope of a better future? You know, that's the story for many Australians, of course, because we're a nation of immigrants. Um, and there are many famous examples, even in our own country, let alone around the world. One famous example is Arne Do. Uh, you may know of him and seen him on TV. He fled a war-ravaged Vietnam with his family at the age of three. Uh, most of his family had been imprisoned by the Viet Cong, and when they left, they spent five days in a leaky boat edging towards Australia. They were attacked twice by pirates in that time, and eventually they were rescued by a German ship, and Australia took the Doe family in, along with those on board. And he would go on to be a stand-up comedian, a painter, and a TV presenter, and he had an autobiography, The Happiest Refugee, which went on to be an award-winning bestseller. It's a success story, right? You know, his family left behind poverty and prison, and they found prosperity in Australia. And many people in our church, particularly in our Burmese and Karenian congregations, can relate to that story. It's their story too. But I want to ask you, what if that immigration tale was reversed? What if you were called to leave prosperity and to go to poverty and insecurity? Who would sign up for that? And what if you were leaving your newly adopted country, which you had been at for several generations, 80 years, established yourselves well, and you were called to go back to your home country, which was in complete ruin? Because that's the situation, the scenario in the book of Zechariah. God is calling the Israelites to come home to Jerusalem, those who are still living in prosperous Babylon, return home but return to a desolate Judah, to a destroyed Jerusalem. Trust me with your future, God says, because I have a wonderful plan for you. But the people are not so sure. Many of them are struggling with that decision. And I think the big question this passage raises, which we'll consider tonight, is why is it so hard to trust God with our future? You know, it was difficult for the Israelites. It can be a struggle for us today. Why can it be so hard to trust God with our future? Well, our passage offers three answers to that, I'll argue. And the first answer is this, because the present often looks uncertain. Because our present situation often looks so uncertain. So notice again what is stated in verses 18 to 21 of chapter 1. Zechariah writes, Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered me, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. I asked, What are these coming to do? 
He answered, These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. Last week we saw the first of eight nighttime visions that Zechariah received, and this is now the second one. And the horns are an image of power from the animal world. They represent opposition, uh, nations being aggressive towards Judah, surrounding them, ultimately scattering the nation. And of course, we know that 80 years earlier, the Babylonians came and crushed um, the city of Jerusalem and all the surrounds of Judah and took most of the people into exile back to Babylon. But it wasn't just the Babylonians that were against Judah. There were many surrounding countries um, that were attacking God's people, both back then and even now 80 years later in the tale. And so as things stood, an Israelite in Babylon was under the protection of a large empire. Yes, it wasn't their homeland. And even though now it had been taken over by the Persians, they were able to live freely, fairly happy, (laughs) prosperous lives. And so to head home to Jerusalem was a big risk even if it was the promised land. And they knew that many of their number, at least, had started that journey, had returned 20 years earlier and continued to, but they were struggling back in the land. Things were not easy, as we heard last week. Everything was uncertain. And so even if they desired to return, well, you know, was this a good time? Very little had been reestablished. And those powers, those nations that surrounded that were against them, well, they still existed. What was to stop them from turning on Judah again? Why return when they had things more comfortable? However, then we learn of the defeat of these horns by the four craftsmen. Not only do these craftsmen throw them down, but they also terrify them. It does leave us scratching our heads immediately. How could these aggressive nations with their warring armies be defeated by a team of artisans, you know, who were perhaps skilled in carpentry, but they weren't warriors. You know, it'd be like the president of the local crochet club stepping into the ring with the heavyweight boxing champion and winning, or, you know, the local facilitator of the scrapbooking club coming and taking on the MMA fighter and winning the championship. It's just not likely. And this is just the point as you get to this section. This is a surprising victory. Only God could give this victory. And so the key to grasping what is going on here is actually in the previous vision, the first vision that we considered last week, where God announced in verse 16 that he would return to Jerusalem with mercy and his house would be rebuilt. And so you see these craftsmen That's their role, the rebuilding of the temple. The same term is used in Ezra where we get the rebuilding of the temple detailed in chapters 2 to 6. It's the same description of this group is there in Ezra. They are constructing the place where God symbolically dwelt with his people. And as the creator and the ruler over all nations, he was also the one that would bring things to account. He would judge the nations. He would throw them down and terrify them in his power. And so the craftsmen may be weak, humanly speaking, but they are preparing the way for Almighty God, who has said he will return, his presence will be again with his people in Jerusalem as his chastised people come back to live in their promised land. He's going to act on their behalf. You see, if you have God in your corner, there is no uncertainty about the future. It doesn't matter what the other nations are doing. If God is with you, 
who can be against you? Now, I think we know something of this sense of uncertainty, even in today's world, don't we? We've seen it a lot in the last couple of years with the spread of the coronavirus, which has meant that we ourselves live in uncertain times. We find our movements restricted. We're testing all the time. We're taking vaccinations. And it's left many people feeling on edge. I think still, even now, as we start to move back to a new normal, there's this kind of feeling of sickness hanging over us that at least as we plan, we're a little bit more cautious in our planning because who knows, you know, we may not be able to do that next week. But for God's people, the truth is that there is always certainty, no matter what is going on in our world. There's always certainty because God is in control of all events and so we don't live in fear. Threats have always been before his people in one form or another, COVID or otherwise. That doesn't mean that we're naive about whatever we might face in this world or that somehow we act in ways that are reckless, not at all. But neither should we be overwhelmed or immobilised by events surrounding us. We're always to step forward and trust our sovereign God with our future. Things are not uncertain with him. And trusting God always involves us stepping out in faith in the present, regardless of what is happening in our life. And that brings me to a second answer, second answer to our question of why it can be hard to trust God with our future. Not only because we look around at uncertainty in the present, but secondly, because we have to let go of our security. We have to let go of our security. So notice again how chapter 2 begins in verses 1 to 5. And then I looked up before me, and there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. And I asked, where are you going? And he answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. And while the angel who was speaking to me was leaving, another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and the animals in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. Now we come to the third vision, and it continues to unpack both on the one hand the punishment of the nations that had formerly attacked Jerusalem and now the restoration of God's people and its city. And this encounter now is with a man holding a measuring line. In the Hebrew, it's literally measuring rope. But I guess if we want to put it into modern parlance, we might say, well, it's the guy with the surveying equipment. And so he's, he's mapping out in preparation for building works. Now, we don't know what he's actually measuring out, but we do know that in Haggai, in the um, contemporary prophet of Zechariah, that the people had already been rebuilding their homes. Those that had come back naturally in the past 20 years had built homes to live in, and they had commenced actually building the temple as well. But we notice in verse 5 that it seems to be inferred that it's about the city wall. And so the man is measuring out the boundaries of the city and thinking about the rebuilding of the wall, which hasn't been started at all, which will happen later in the book of Nehemiah. But notice here... This is a negative. The surveyor's actions are seen as a negative by the angel in verse 4 who encounters another angel, sends him urgently to sort of correct the man who is acting in this way. He tells him, no, look, the city will be without walls. You don't need to measure for walls. It's going to be packed with people and animals. And so there's a sense in which the measuring of it will somehow confine or constrain what God is going to do. God's got a far greater vision than they can imagine 
When you're a small group of people facing marauding surrounding nations, you're just worried about drawing the boundaries as close in as you can. Less wall to build. There's only a few of us here to protect. But God's vision is so broad. He's going to pack Jerusalem. There's going to be a stream of people coming back into the city. And what this is showing already is beginning to fulfill what we saw in vision one last week in verse 17, that God says the city is going to be prosperous again. There's going to be lots of people coming back as his presence returns to be with his people. Now, all of this would have been a shock to Zechariah and presumably the surveyor because, well, Jerusalem had always been a heavily fortified city, even from when King David took control of it way back in 2 Samuel. The nation had always sort of thought that their walls were a protection. Of course, it hadn't stopped the Babylonians 80 years earlier. And what they had learnt through the exile was that the key protection for Jerusalem was never the wall. It was always their God who dwelt with them and who would protect them. And so God's dwelling in their midst is the thing that counts. And that's what the angel says in verse 5 as he quotes the Lord and says, I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord. I will be its glory within. And so this language here is looking back to the Exodus that period where Israel came out of Egypt and God protected the people, the cloud of pillar of fire, pillar of cloud by day. And so one example in Exodus where we read of this in Exodus 14 verse 24, this is where the, the Egyptians have followed them out and going to attack them in the desert. And we read there, During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. God has always been the key. (laughs) No human arrangements or protections. And so like God's old covenant people, it's the same for us today. Our security is not in walls. It's not in what we build, what we arrange to insulate our lives, whether financially or otherwise. That's never going to work. Our security as believers is always in God. And so no amount of insurance will ever be your protection. But the living God, who is sovereign over all things, well, including your very next breath, he is the one who can certainly do it. And so we have to let go of our man-made, our false sense of security that we often seek to construct in this life. We need to hold on to the living God because in him we truly have nothing to fear. I'm sure you've been shocked, as I have, as we've all watched over the last couple of months, uh, the destruction of large parts of the Ukraine. It's been a terrible war as it's unfolded, and we watch the people shelter in bunkers, in underground railway stations. But, of course, the shells and bombs have just kept coming, and the cities have continued to be levelled, and millions of people have fled across the western border into countries like Poland and Moldova and Romania, seeking security. But security may not be found even in those countries. It's been sad to hear, hasn't it, that some of the people that have crossed the border have been met by people traffickers who have said, oh, come and join me in my van and I'll take you to a safe place. Then they disappear. Our world is full of mess everywhere. It was only last August that we saw the catastrophic fall of the democratic government in Afghanistan and all the loss of life that went with that, all the hardship that's followed in that country. And that's to say nothing of the ongoing fighting in Myanmar, where a lot of our brothers and sisters in the morning church come from. 
seeing village after village where they know people just being burnt to the ground week on week. And then China, in this past week, has done an economic and security pact with the Solomon Islands, and suddenly Australia feels less secure, or so we're told. The reality is that security can't be found in governments, in walls, in insurance. We have to let go of these things. Our Western countries, especially like Australia, teach us that somehow we can control the events, that if only we do this or that, then all of our life will pan out and, and bad things won't happen and we can protect ourselves. But Christians can't fall into that kind of empty thinking. God is sovereign. We're called to trust in him. Our faith is secure. It doesn't protect us necessarily from the hard things of life. It doesn't mean that suffering won't befall those who are believers but it means that our God is with us. And this world we know that people so badly cling on to at times is not the whole thing. It's not the important thing for those who are in Christ. We're going to a far better place. Our security is in what's ahead in Christ. And that brings us to a third and final answer to this question of why it's so hard for us to trust God with our future. Thirdly, it's hard because we have to let go of our comforts. We have to let go of our comfort. Have a look again at verses 6 to 9. Zechariah records, Come, come, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have scattered you to the four winds of heaven, declares the Lord. Come, Zion, escape you who live in daughter Babylon. For this is what the Lord Almighty says, after the glorious one has sent me to against the nations that have plundered you, for whoever touches you touches the apple of his eye, I will surely raise my hand against them so that their slaves will plunder them. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. We've shifted from the first three visions now, and this is like a short sermon or exhortation, if you like, from Zechariah. And he's speaking directly to the exiles that are still back in Babylon. And he's putting God's appeal to them yet again on the back of these three visions. Now, having seen what I've seen, hear again that you need to return. And so the reference here to the land of the north is again Babylon. It's just a call for the people to come back to Jerusalem. Why does he have to appeal over and over? Why does it begin to feel like a broken record at this point? Because the vast majority are still in Babylon. It's only a small group that have actually come back to Jerusalem. And why is that? Well, because things are pretty comfortable in Babylon. They don't really want to come back to the mess that is their home country. But they're being called here to let go of all of that. The Persian takeover of Babylon under Cyrus had happened 20 years earlier, and when Cyrus came to power, he said, the Jews can go home. The cell door is open. You're free to leave. And yet most of them stayed. And so here is Zechariah appealing to them, saying, this is your time to come. In verse 10, the returning exiles are meant to rejoice. They're meant to be so excited about returning to the land, to be present with God symbolically at the temple, returning again to the promised land. But so many are just not trusting this call. And I'll tell you why. Because obeying God is costly, and it's not much different today. It often means giving up 
our comforts, our securities. God's plan is just so much greater than our little material comforts. He's building a people. He's building a kingdom. He's not building your kingdom. And so we are to rejoice in God, not in the things that he grants us or even the things that he takes away. And so we've got to keep asking ourselves the question, especially in affluent Australia today, is my faithfulness to God being compromised by my attachment to the easy life? Is my faithfulness to God something that's really dependent on things working well? Am I committed to serving his kingdom or am I really chasing my own? God's not interested in us being double-minded on that. God's got a huge plan and it's about bringing the nations into his kingdom. This is the final part of Zechariah's appeal from verses 11 to 13. Have a look again from verse 10. Shout and be glad, daughter Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion in the Holy Land, and he will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Now this phrase here, the nations, many nations, will be joined with the Lord. This is covenant language. Here is God announcing that others outside the Jewish nation will be included in. This is more of the fulfillment of the great number of people and animals that will be bursting at the seams in Jerusalem, as we saw in that second vision. Pictures the nations flowing into renewed Jerusalem. And that's actually something that prophets have been picking up long before Zechariah. Isaiah had said similar things at a number of points in his prophecy, that God will draw the nations as they flow into Jerusalem. But I want to tell you that a Jewish person hearing this felt really uncomfortable. They're not excited at all. They're unhappy about this. These nations, these surrounding foreign nations that we were set apart from, these nations that have crushed us, some of which have sent us into exile, they're going to be included in our spiritual inheritance. They're going to be welcomed into Jerusalem. Is that what's going to happen? You see, this theme points well beyond the return of the exiles to Israel. It foresees the new covenant community of the church where both Jew and Gentile will be included. It's why when we read a passage like this as Gentiles, we're excited because we see here, even back in Zechariah, that God had his mind on including even us into his grand plans for eternity. This building of Christ's church will see people from every tribe and language and nation included. God's kingdom will be bursting at the seams, not only for his people of the old covenant, but from all people. And that is why at the end of his ministry, in Luke 24, Jesus, as he announced, was what his disciples are to do, which includes us today. He says these words, Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. And then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. And he told them, this is what is written. The Christ will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. 
See, this is Luke's equivalent of the Great Commission in Matthew 28. And it's striking, isn't it, how he emphasizes here Jesus' words about the plan of salvation, including all people, beginning way back in the Old Testament. This is not a new thing suddenly as Christ arrives on the scene. And we've seen that tonight in Zechariah chapter 2. Proclaiming God's salvation has always been on God's salvation, on his agenda from the very beginning of time. The nations must hear this information. But you notice here with Jesus, he's reversing the movement. Instead of the nations flowing and streaming into Jerusalem, now the disciples will go out from Jerusalem to the nations, to the ends of the earth. And so we're included in this great plan of God's. But if we pause for a moment and think about that, we realize that there's some discomfort in that for us too. Because it involves proclaiming a message to the world that so often doesn't want to hear it, that wants to push back against the good news about Jesus, that doesn't want to bend the knee to this one who is being announced. And so... It involves us suddenly not being those that are quite so accepted in our secular society, being seen as the bad guys, those out on the fringe, letting go of some of our comforts perhaps. But taking a stand on anything important is always costly, isn't it? In 2011, I saw a documentary about the Australian Olympian Peter Norman. Peter who, you might say. He doesn't really rank up there those that immediately spring to mind, like an Ian Thorpe or an Emma McKeon. But Norman was the Australian track athlete best known for winning a silver medal at the 1968 Mexico Games. His time of 20.06 seconds still stands as the best 200-metre run over 50 years later. The guy was actually incredible. He was a five-time Australian 200-metre champion. But he's more famously known for this moment when he collected his medal because the two black American sprinters made a famous gesture during it. The gold and bronze medalists in this 200-metre race were Tommy Smith and John Carlos. And on the medal podium during the playing of the Star Spangled Banner, Smith and Carlos uh, raised their arms in what was uh, known as the Black Power Salute. What is less commonly known by people is Norman, a white Australian, stood in support of them. He knew what they were going to do, and he wore a badge supporting their cause, which was the Olympic Project for Human Rights. You see, it was the height of the civil rights movement in the United States, where there were huge demonstrations throughout the months of 1968 and before and after. And those two sprinters wanted to make a big social statement on the biggest platform there was. And so after the race had finished, they came to Norman and they said to him, do you believe in human rights? He said, absolutely. They said to him, do you believe in God? He said, I strongly believe in God. He was from a Salvation Army background. He was a strong Christian. They said to him, what we're going to do is more important than our athletic feats. Will you stand with us? I'll stand with you. Well, that moment resulted in a high price to be paid for the two Americans and for the Aussie. Australian Olympic authorities reprimanded him. The Australian media ostracised him. They would not say a good thing about him. Despite Norman qualifying 18 times for the 100 metres and 200 metres for the next Olympics, 
at times that would have won him a medal again, they refused to send him to the 1972 Munich Olympics. Even in 2000, when we finally had Olympics in Sydney, they refused to involve him in any way, shape or form. And when the Americans found out, they invited him and he sat with the Americans. Well, taking a stand for what is important. To make a statement, to proclaim the gospel of Christ's death and resurrection is not always a welcome message today. And it's even more important than human rights, not that they're unimportant. But announcing the gospel too comes at a real cost. Perhaps you've already been counting that cost in your life. Perhaps you've shared in ways that have seen you ostracized or rejected by friends or paid the price at workplace. Maybe you're thinking too as you reflect on the cost of that, you know, well, I'm struggling with my job and or I don't really have enough time to catch up with my friends or my family and, you know, I'm not really growing even myself. I'm struggling to have enough time to read the Bible and pray myself, let alone share the gospel with other people. Now, all those other things are important, but sharing the gospel is certainly not less. And perhaps you're concerned of what might follow. But have you thought about the alternative picture? It's one where you pursue more and more your own private goals, where we find ourselves stepping back from God's mission and become increasingly cold towards those around us who don't know the hope of Jesus. It's not a great picture. Taking a stand for what is important always comes with a cost. And so we've got to be willing to count that cost. And so often our maybes, yeah, I might get around to that. I maybe this year I'll, I'll share a bit more with that neighbor. I'll speak with that person at work. Maybe I'll invite that person to Christianity Explored this term. Well, I want to encourage you tonight to change those maybes into resolutions to take a stand and say, I'm going to pray and act and see what God does because some things are just too important not to do. It just takes a step. Sometimes we think of all the possibilities and we get overwhelmed. We don't need to think of everything. God doesn't need you to be Billy Graham tomorrow. He just needs you to act with the people that he has surrounded you with, the opportunities that he'll present. You know, there are 300,000 people or so in the Illawarra. About 3 to 4% of them are in church on any given Sunday. That tells you how many people are not aware of Jesus or are not committed to following him. The needs are massive. And we're planning to plant a church down in the south, hopefully next year. But you know, whether we're planning a church or you're sharing with a colleague at work tomorrow, Neither of them will happen with any success unless God is at work, and neither will happen unless we choose to be his instruments and step forward. God chooses to work through his people, and so often we hold back. But for us to share, we've got to be convicted. It will not happen because I've encouraged you to do so, or your friend does. But God will need to convict you, move your heart towards the many people around you so that you're not complacent, 
so that you're not caught up in the things of your own plans and kingdom, but you're focused resolutely on Christ's kingdom. And you'll see to it that you trust God with everything you do as you step forward each day because you want to serve his kingdom, and that is the most important thing. So often we find that we want to try and have a foot in both camps. (laughs) It's so difficult to mesh our kingdom with God's. God's one wants to win, and we need to give up on our securities, give up on our comforts, step out of our uncertainty and trust him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want to acknowledge tonight that you have a wondrous plan for your world, that you created this world that you might draw to yourself a people that are your very own for your praise and glory. And Lord, you give us the privilege of being part, of partnering with you in sharing of the good news so that you might bring many people into your kingdom from every tribe and language and nation. Lord, help us to see our part in it here in the Illawarra, day by day, just in the small things that you might help us to be those that are thinking about the needs of those around us, about your priorities in this world. Oh Lord, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to step out in trust, to act, and we wait upon you and your work to draw people to yourself. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.